Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Today we speak with our guests about their new book, A Troubled Constitutional Future, Northern Ireland After Brexit, which, apart from including some tremendous podcast citations, considers the potential impact that Brexit will have on the future of Northern Ireland and its relationship with both the UK and Ireland. Joining us today are Dr. Jonathan Evershed, a Newman Fellow in Constitutional Futures at the University College of Dublin. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you very much for coming on. And we've also got Dr. Mary C. Murphy, who holds the John Monet Chair in European Integration at the University College Cork. Hello, Mary. Hi, Matthew. Thank you very much for joining us both. Uh, so the first question I wanted to, to ask you, obviously your book looks at uh, the impact that Brexit has had on Northern Ireland, but it also discusses quite well, I think, a lot of the information about Northern Ireland before Brexit and the kind of constitutional settlement that was in place before the, the rupture that Brexit was. So, Mary, perhaps, would you be able to describe the constitutional and political settlement on the island of Ireland prior to Brexit and sort of post the signing of the Good Friday Agreement? What was the kind of temperature of the room post the Good Friday Agreement and before we got to Brexit? Well, I guess like other parts of the UK, Wales included, and also Scotland, um, Northern Ireland was subject to uh, the devolution plans, which were part and parcel of the Tony Blair period and, and the period of new labour in the late 1990s. And the Good Friday Agreement emerged as uh, effectively the peace settlement for Northern Ireland after 1998. And that agreement has three essential strands to it. The first strand is the institutions, devolved institutions within Northern Ireland, which are based on a power sharing arrangement. They give responsibility and they give visibility to the two communities in Northern Ireland. Uh, you have strand two, an equally important part of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, and that creates a relationship between North and South on the island of Ireland and accompanying institutions which facilitate cooperation between both parts of the island. And then finally, strand three is the East-West dimension of the agreement, and that creates relations between East and West, between the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the UK and all of its constituent components. And after 1998, the agreement began to operate. Uh, it encountered uh, sporadic periods of suspension and collapse. It was marked by uh, different stresses related to some of the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement and their implementation, and a whole series of, of, of different policy challenges as well, I guess, down through the years. So what can we say about that? It's 24 years since the agreement was signed. And uh, during that period, um, there has certainly been advances and there has been progress, but there has equally been setbacks and, and sporadic impasses during that period too. But we, we, we see Northern Ireland settling into a period of relative stability after 1998, uh, despite some of those setbacks. Uh, and I suppose what our book tries to document is how what happened in 2016 represented a very severe rupture for Northern Ireland and for the relations there, which had settled into, um, into some sort of, of stability after 1998. Jonathan, do you have anything to add on that? And that's the next question I have is, what impact did the EU have in maintaining that stability? I have uh, just one thing to add to what Mary's already said about Northern Ireland's constitutional settlement after 1998. And then I think Mary is ideally placed to talk about the, the role of the EU and of Europeanisation in that process of stabilisation that Mary talked about and in Northern Ireland's 
constitutional settlement post-1998. So the only thing I would add to what Mary said about the constitutional settlement was represented by the Good Friday Agreement was a critical thing that the Good Friday Agreement enshrined was the principle of consent, which is that Northern Ireland remains part of the United Kingdom insofar as and for so long as that remains the express wish of a majority of people that live in Northern Ireland. And this is what's at stake when we talk about the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. Brexit has raised new questions about whether and for how long the majority of the people who live in Northern Ireland are liable to uh, want it to, to remain part of the union. So that's a critical aspect of Northern Ireland's constitutional settlement that in some respects is unique vis-a-vis uh, -vis the devolution settlements in Wales and Scotland, uh, albeit that um, we could go down a rabbit hole here, uh, albeit that um, particularly in the run-up to and, and since the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, there is a question about whether or not de facto that also uh, is now true for Scotland and Wales. But I'll hand over to Mary again, who is, is really well positioned to talk about the EU and, and Europeanisation and its underpinning of the constitutional settlement in Northern Ireland before 2016. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, I, I mean, I think we can all accept that the UK's relationship with the European Union has been troubled throughout its period of membership after 1973. Northern Ireland is slightly different in that Northern Ireland um, has traditionally and historically been more pro-European uh, than the rest of the United Kingdom. And much of that was premised on uh, the role that the EU played in Northern Ireland, particularly from the 1990s onwards. One of the big features of that relationship was the way in which the EU supported the peace process from the 1990s onwards. And they did this in a number of ways. There are those who would suggest that uh, the very fact of shared British and Irish EU membership of the EU created a space wherein both governments could bilaterally and discreetly discuss the situation in Northern Ireland. And the suggestion is that that quiet forum, well away from Dublin and Belfast, based predominantly on the margins of European Council meetings in Brussels, that that forum created an arena wherein both governments could better understand each other, uh, discuss frankly, openly and honestly with each other, and come up with different ideas and prescriptions for how the Northern Ireland conflict might be addressed. Before the agreement was signed, just after the calling of paramilitary ceasefires in Northern Ireland in 1994, the EU stepped in and uh, made a commitment to financially support Northern Ireland as it navigated this uh, new period of, of a relative peace in Northern Ireland. And we have had different iterations of the Peace and Reconciliation Fund financed by the EU since 1995. And that has been very important funding for Northern Ireland. It hasn't funded just typical infrastructural projects. It has more especially been important in terms of supporting community groups, local authorities, and various different social programs in Northern Ireland. And those particular funds have been welcomed in Northern Ireland and appreciated in Northern Ireland. And they have been useful to both communities in Northern Ireland as well. What I would also say uh, about the EU and Northern Ireland is that the EU was not a mobilizing issue in Northern Ireland. People weren't exercised 
by EU membership in the same way that people across the rest of the United Kingdom were. So the relationship between Northern Ireland and the EU was, was relatively stable, pretty harmonious, and for the most part appreciated by the people of Northern Ireland. And I suppose that goes some way to explaining why Northern Ireland supported the UK remaining in the EU in 2016. Let's move to the question of the actual referendum campaign then. To what extent do you think that the potential for instability was covered during the referendum campaign? And how do you think coverage of this differed between that in Northern Ireland and that in the rest of GB? Uh, (laughs) Northern Ireland was not considered. (laughs) You know, even in the run-up, to the decision about holding a referendum, Northern Ireland was was not considered, it was not part of the equation that David Cameron and others within the Conservative Party uh, judged. So so the decision to hold a referendum was was really all about the Conservative Party, first and foremost, I, I would suggest, and their troubled relationship with the EU and the way in which the EU issue was, was dividing and fragmenting that particular party and impacting negatively on their, um, their electoral situation. But, but all of the evidence that we have come across suggests that, that Northern Ireland was, 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 was simply not part of, of the decision-making process. It was not a consideration when it came to the very decision to hold a referendum. And throughout the referendum period itself, the Northern Ireland issue beyond Northern Ireland did not feature as part and parcel of the the different discussions and debates that were had across the rest of the United Kingdom. Despite the efforts of the Irish government, for example, which did work to try to persuade the British government and others across the rest of the UK that the Irish issue was one which, which should be factored in and which should be considered. And moreover, Various members of the Irish government made representations to the British government about holding a referendum on EU membership, because in Ireland, we have had experience of referendums of this nature. So successive Irish governments have been very attuned to the difficulties of having a discussion about a very challenging and complex issue like this. Um, But again, those uh, warnings appear not to have been heeded by the British government. Um, and the Northern Ireland issue really doesn't feature across the rest of the United Kingdom during the referendum campaign. So I think a critical thing here is to bear in mind that the UK government went into the referendum expecting to win it and expecting to win it quite easily. Uh, and little attention was paid to what it would mean if a differential result was returned across the four constituent parts of the United Kingdom, which is exactly what happened, of course, So there was no plan for what would happen in that eventuality. I think that adds to what Mary's suggesting in terms of there being very little preparation on the part of the UK government and very little awareness of what the potential consequences of this might be for the constitutional stability of the United uh, Kingdom. In the book, we highlight that one of the very first and most influential books about Brexit, Tim Shipman's All Out War, makes almost no reference at all to Ireland. Ireland's not in the index, which is very indicative, I think, of the place that Ireland had, well, the lack of place that Ireland has in the British political imagination, full stop, but in the Conservative Party in particular's approach to Brexit and to the the question of uh, the UK's EU membership. So we've talked a lot about how it was covered in 
GB, but in terms of the campaign in Northern Ireland, was the potential for instability a large part of the discussion in Northern Ireland? If so, what, what were the motivations for the way that each party campaigned if they knew that this is going to cause potential significant disruption to the constitutional future, which as I'm sure everyone listening knows is already a very uh, difficult subject in Northern Ireland anyway. So the campaign in Northern Ireland was really pretty muted in general. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that there was an assembly election only a few weeks beforehand, which meant that everybody was very tired and resources were depleted. Um, So the campaign didn't really pick up a head of steam certainly not in the same way that it did in Great Britain. Those questions that motivated the referendum in Great Britain, particularly those of immigration, uh, or particularly that of immigration, is not as salient in Northern Ireland. And what's really striking is that such campaigning as was undertaken by parties in Northern Ireland, the most prominent and significant example we have is of the DUP campaigning in main, quote unquote, mainland Great Britain with its Metro newspaper ads. It's £250,000 worth of, of Metro newspaper ads. The Metro doesn't circulate in Northern Ireland, which is really intriguing, which I think speaks to something of the lingering ambiguity within the DUP at that stage anyway, around whether or not this was actually a good idea. <laughs> they didn't really go hard on the question in Northern Ireland itself, but they did contribute uh, in ways that have obviously been subject to electoral commission investigations subsequently to the campaign on the mainland. There are also some interesting questions about Sinn Féin's role in the the Brexit campaign, although Sinn Féin was uh, and remains firmly, or was pro-Remain, remains firmly anti-Brexit. The rigour and intensity of its campaign during the referendum was fairly limited. And there are some interesting questions around why that is. And there's some speculation that that might be born in part of a kind of England's difficulties, Ireland's opportunity mode of analysis, which is that, you know, if Brexit were to go ahead, it would have these destabilising consequences for the for the British constitution, the, the territorial constitution of the UK, which might serve the interests of Irish republicanism. I'm not sure how convincing that is or how big a part that played in what was the fa- a, a fairly muted Remain campaigning effort on the part of, of Sinn Féin. But uh, there are some interesting questions about how different analyses or lack thereof of the impact or possible impact of Brexit on the territorial constitution played into the ways that different parties in Northern Ireland undertook uh, to campaign in that referendum. The SDLP, uh, the second largest of the two nationalist parties, was unequivocally pro-Remain and campaigned hard on the question because it's in their blood. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it is of profound ideological and emotional significance to them. Sinn Féin has a more Eurocritical uh, history and 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 politics. Uh, the DUP has this kind of out and out Eurosceptic position uh, in the kind of conventional British Eurosceptic mould, albeit with its own kind of ethno-national flavour. Whereas the Ulster Unionist Party had a on the on the packet, it was a pro-Remain position. How how hard they went on that is is a, is an interesting question. 
So immediately following the vote, Mary, what was the sort of political reaction and and how soon did it become apparent that Bre- not it wasn't necessarily Project Fear, Brexit was going to have a real impact on the constitutional dynamics on the island of Ireland? Well, the initial reaction was most certainly shock uh, and profound shock on the part of many in Northern Ireland and certainly profound shock in the Republic of Ireland. Um, in the Republic of Ireland, for example, Parliament was recalled uh, within a couple of days and a whole choreographed response um, followed from the Irish government in terms of press releases, meetings with opposition parties, um, meetings with the European Union and the recall of Parliament itself. So there really was a, a profound sense of, of shock um, about the result. And then, of course, that was immediately followed by fears and concerns about how Northern Ireland might be accommodated in the context of this Brexit vote. In Northern Ireland, there was uh, an equal sense of shock, I think, shared across the political spectrum as well. I mean, we can return to a point Jonathan made earlier about the fact that no one really expected it to be a leave result. And I would include all political parties in Northern Ireland in that, including the DUP who campaigned in favour of leave. I think the leave result vote was just as much a shock for the DUP as for any of the other political parties in Northern Ireland. It became apparent pretty quickly that the Northern Ireland issue was going to be contentious and complex. But there was some sign of hope, perhaps, when we saw the First Minister, Arlene Foster at the time, and the Deputy First Minister, Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin, coming together uh, to write a joint letter to the Prime Minister, Theresa May at the time, uh, the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, where they voiced shared concerns about the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. And that included the potential impact on the peace process. Now, unfortunately, that what appeared to be some shared sense of concern about Brexit for Northern Ireland, that didn't necessarily last because what we saw shortly afterwards was unionism retreating to a position where it followed the wider UK example in insisting that Northern Ireland leave the, U- leave the EU on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. On the other hand, we see nationalism adopting support for some sort of special status for Northern Ireland, which would allow it to perhaps better navigate the challenges uh, that Northern Ireland was facing. From that point onwards, we are exposed to uh, the tortuous negotiations between the UK and the EU, which are very, very heavily focused on Northern Ireland uh, in the period from 2017 onwards. To what extent did it feel as though the discussions of the post-Brexit border was a conversation happening to Northern Ireland rather than one in which Northern Ireland was intrinsically involved? And, and, And to what extent do you think that's because the relationship with power sharing and the way that was operating during this time, to what extent do you think that was because the main Northern Irish voice being heard by the UK government at this point was the DUP? And to what extent do you think it is just because this sort of uh, what is being called a sort of Anglo-centric British nationalism that is so thoroughly part of the UK government just completely ignores the whole idea of Northern Ireland having its own voice? Brexit per se right, is something that happened to Northern Ireland against the express wishes of a majority of people that live there. So Brexit per se is something that was imposed on Northern Ireland. I often felt a profound sense of frustration with 
the pronouncements of certain Conservative Party politicians that the border wasn't a real problem, that it was one that we were making up, that the peace process wasn't a real problem, that it was one that we were making up. The failure to take it seriously, you know, the kinds of things that, that Boris Johnson said about it, you know, that the Irish border was akin to the border between Islington and Camden or whatever it was that he said, those kinds of pronouncements were profoundly unhelpful, profoundly insensitive and speak to um, something that I, I've already highlighted, which is a, a kind of generalised uh, absence of Ireland, of Ireland's politics, of Irish political history from the UK political imagination. This was really something we wanted to really address kind of head on with this book and to intervene in and disrupt. <laughs> There, there is one thing I would say, though, in all of this, and that is that Northern Ireland did not necessarily help itself in this scenario. Uh, we have the institutions collapsing and we have a failure on the part of unionism and nationalism to come together in any way, shallow or otherwise, to agree any sort of position on, on Brexit. Now, I suppose that clearly speaks to the high degree of contestation there was about the Brexit issue and the way in which it exposed very deep divisions between nationalism and unionism in Northern Ireland. But it was very disappointing to see that the power sharing arrangement and the devolved institutions weren't capable of responding to an exogenous existential crisis of this nature at that time. So the ability of those institutions to deal with severe crisis of this nature is, uh, I suppose, not unsurprising, but, but, but nevertheless disappointing. I guess that the fact that Northern Ireland didn't have a voice, you know, had no institutionalised voice in the Brexit process is one thing. One thing that it does kind of behove me to say, though, is that, you know, that Northern Ireland did have a albeit not unanimous position on the uh, the question of Brexit and the, the, the issue of the border and proposed solutions to it, uh, a united voice <laughs> on that, uh, which was opposed by unionism in general and the DUP in particular. So it's, it's noteworthy that throughout the Brexit process, you've highlighted, Matt, that the DUP uh, were the only voice that had the UK government's ear, uh, and that was formalised through that um, incredibly ill-judged, in my view, confidence and supply arrangement between the UK government and between Theresa May's government and the DUP, uh, that the DUP stood in opposition to the majority opinion in Northern Ireland throughout the Brexit process. The Theresa May's backstop was the a preferred option for the majority in Northern Ireland. It was supported by a majority of Northern Ireland's parties fairly consistently, um, but the DUP took an anti-protocol position which held uh, disproportionate sway over the approach taken by, by the UK government in terms of its dealing with the, the, the expressed desires and wishes of people in Northern Ireland. And I might just add as well to that, the Northern Ireland Protocol 
which was the, the, the eventual compromise reached by Boris Johnson during the UK-EU negotiations, that was actually opposed by all of the five major political parties in Northern Ireland. Now, vehemently opposed by unionism, but forces within nationalism and within the centre ground were, were also opposed to the protocol. And, and, and yet the protocol became the basis for the way in which Northern Ireland would be, would be dealt with in the context of the UK's exit from the EU. So there's been this constant disconnect between Northern Ireland and the British government throughout this period, which really has been to, to the detriment of Northern Ireland. And it's again, something that we wanted to highlight in the book itself, that the way in which Northern Ireland has been dealt with previous to Brexit and in the period since has been very disappointing. Whilst, whilst we're sort of hanging around the relationship with the UK and the Irish government, what has the impact of Brexit been on the various nationalisms in Northern Ireland? And how has this been impacted by the various nationalisms of the Irish and UK governments? It's a really great question. So we have a chapter in the book that deals explicitly with the impact of Brexit on nationalism uh, on the island of Ireland. Um, we take the island of Ireland in its entirety, for I suppose obvious reasons, and in many respects there's a kind of paradox, I think, in terms of the impact that Brexit has had on Irish nationalism. Because on the one hand, Brexit is something of a gift, or is potentially something of a gift for Irish nationalists, in that it has, you know, albeit that the polls are inconsistent, um, and in some cases only at the margins, increased the likelihood of there being majority support on both sides of the border for Irish unification or indeed reunification in the short to medium term. In that it's done that, Brexit has been something of a gift for Irish nationalism. It has reopened the constitutional question in a way that that question was not open for an alternative answer to, than that of the status quo, uh, really since the height of the Troubles. If anything, support for United Ireland was decreasing rather than increase, has decreased rather than increased since 1998. And that has been reversed to a substantial degree, uh, or at least potentially reversed by, to a substantial degree by Brexit. The debate about United Ireland is now live in a way that it wasn't before Brexit. But ultimately, Brexit has posed a profound and quite existential crisis for Irish nationalism because it comes with the threat of a hardened border. It comes with the threat of economic damage to Ireland and to the all-island economy. It comes with the threat of damage to those kinds of north-south relationships and the openness of the Irish border, which have given expression to Irish nationalism since 1998. And that ultimately has been what has motivated Irish nationalists of all stripes. And in the book, we take that to mean, um, we, we, we look in particular at the largest political parties who give expression to Irish nationalism on the island of Ireland. So we look at Sinn Féin, the SDLP, and we look at Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle in particular as kind of the political parties that give primary expression to Irish nationalism, all of them across the board uh, and with kind of almost universal consequences for kind of policy 
have taken Brexit to be a, a serious crisis and have approached it as such. So there's been a degree of unanimity of purpose across those parties. And if you know anything about Irish politics, you'll know that unanimity of purpose across those parties is not something that's easily achieved or indeed sustained across many areas of policy. But on Brexit, they're all singing and have done consistently from the same hymn sheet that the primary thing that needs to happen is that the border needs to stay open and the impact of Brexit on the island of Ireland needs to be minimised. And critically, what that means really is maintaining the status quo that the Good Friday Agreement established. So we saw a lot over the course of the Brexit process uh, of the red tops in the UK kind of signalling that uh, Irish nationalists were trying to use Brexit to try and institute Irish unity through the back door. And in my view, that's total nonsense because the what, what the protocol represents ultimately, what the backstop before it represented, what the protocol now represents, is an attempt insofar as it's possible to maintain the political and legal status quo on the island of Ireland. It's an attempt to achieve stability on the island of Ireland. It's not an attempt to force the issue of Irish unity and to go for a kind of maximalist form of constitutional change, the kind of maximalist form of constitutional change that Irish unity would represent. So pr prior to Brexit, there was much talk of this sort of burgeoning sense of Northern Irish identity, people who didn't identify as solely Irish or completely British. How has this group been impacted by Brexit? And is this identity still prominent or have people tended to retreat to the more hardline positions that we're used to? Uh, well, what we have definitely seen in the period since Brexit, and it probably predates Brexit, to be perfectly honest, is that we have seen people moving away from some of those traditional labels um, of uh, unionist loyalist or, or nationalist Republican. And what we've seen there is an expansion of those who would label themselves as, as unaligned or other or occupying the center ground. And these uh, are a, uh, a growing group, our cohort of society in Northern Ireland, who are not primarily exercised by the constitutional issue and uh, who, who profess to be uh, neutral on that, on that very issue. And that's come hand in hand with the growth in secularization in Northern Ireland, where we've seen people uh, define themselves less and less according to Protestant or Catholic religion. So, so those two trends have been happening in tandem and they have expanded and evolved further in the context of Brexit. And that has manifested itself in the context of growing support for political parties which occupy the centre ground in Northern Ireland. And we can point specifically and most prominently to the Alliance Party here. That party has traditionally scored less than 10% in any election in, in which it has contested. But since 2016, we've seen that figure shift upwards. And uh, I think myself and Jonathan would, would both be of the view that the upcoming assembly election will be very significant in terms of what it tells us about the uh, durability of that support for the centre ground in Northern Ireland. Do not worry, I am absolutely going to bring you back onto the election at some point. You can absolutely guarantee that. Before we move on to the election, I did just want to ask one, one more question. So after the, immediately after the vote, you had then then president of Sinn Féin, Gerry Adams, stating that the result 
revealed a constitutional imperative for a border poll. Nearly, nearly six years on, do you think that is the case? Or do you think there is a comfortable settlement which has been reached and a sort of consensus between the parties, albeit, of course, within their existing desires for remaining in, as part of G, uh, United Kingdom or uh, United Ireland? What we have seen for, for sure is uh, an increased tempo and urgency to the constitutional conversation, particularly in Northern Ireland, but I think on both sides of the Irish border. So the question of Ireland's long-term constitutional future has an urgency that it didn't have before Brexit. Whether that represents an immediate imperative for a border poll, I'm not convinced, but nor am I convinced that a kind of enduring settlement has now been reached where there is a kind of a compromise or consensus between parties in Northern Ireland around the particular outcome of Brexit for Northern Ireland that is represented by the protocol. I mean, that clearly hasn't happened. Unionism in general and the DUP in particular maintain vehement opposition to the protocol. I believe that that opposition is probably self-defeating in the long term. But I, I'm not convinced that the, the, the position that we ultimately arrive at in the book is that we're not convinced that there is an immediate imperative for the kind of advanced form of constitutional change that a border poll would potentially represent. But we do also think that some form of constitutional change is highly likely and that we are living still in this state of uncertainty and instability and flux that could eventually resolve into one of a multitude of different constitutional configurations, but it remains to be seen how that will eventually resolve. And a united island is one among the possibilities of what we've called this constitutional moment that Northern Ireland has got is, is experiencing after Brexit. I mean, Jonathan is right. There is absolutely more agitation around the Irish unity question than there was five years ago, even three years ago on the island of Ireland. Much of it is concentrated in Northern Ireland where we've seen the emergence of civic groups which are actively proposing and pushing for a border poll. But the polling, which does show an, an uptick in support for United Ireland is not so persuasive that it could be used as the basis for holding a border poll tomorrow. It just hasn't gotten to that point yet. Like Jonathan said, a, a border poll is, is not imminent and there may be staging posts on the way to a border poll in the future where we see milder forms of administrative, political, even constitutional change and reform. Uh, but that, that big bang moment where we, we may see a border poll which delivers Irish unity in the future, I, I think is, is, is perhaps some way off. And even having said that, in the event of a border poll, I don't think there are any guarantees that that border poll would necessarily pass. Well, I, I promised a return to this topic, and it would be remiss of me not to raise the upcoming elections to the Northern Irish Assembly. It's been long predicted that Sinn Féin will be the largest party in Stormont. Do you think this will be the case, or do you think that support for the DUP has increased sufficiently that they might remain the largest party? Do you think there'll be a bit of a push from uh, to, for the DUP against you know the TUV and the UUP to sort of get them back up to where they want to be? 
this is where we're in trouble or this is where we possibly get in trouble where we're you know so don't anyone place any bets on the basis of what we say here I anticipate Sinn Féin returning to Stormont as the largest party and thereby being in position to take the position of First Minister. That seems to be what the polling is saying, albeit that that is not a foregone conclusion. I think the DUP are struggling. I think they are struggling electorally. They are struggling existentially with their the, the kind of damage that Brexit has wrought to their brand. If you look at, at the polls, they are struggling on both their left and their right uh, in terms of retaining votes, uh, with their more liberal supporters splitting uh, across previous, you know, recent elections for the Alliance Party in particular. And there is the new insurgent challenge from a more avowedly liberal Ulster Unionist Party led by Doug Beattie, to which some of those votes may go, and they may not transfer to the DUP. But the DUP is also being punished by voters on its right flank for its role in delivering the protocol. It had the ear of the UK government for the duration of the Brexit process, and this is the results. You know, Boris Johnson having, quote unquote, thrown them under the bus, them having played that hand very poorly, and uh, there is anger at the unionist and loyalist grassroots about that. So I don't see this being a good election for the DUP for that reason. And Sinn Féin, which also has political questions and electoral questions to answer in this election, looks set to become the largest party in part by dint of the DUP's likely poor performance. But I, as I say, it's all still to play for. So there I am hedging and equivocating. But I, I do anticipate Sinn Féin coming back as the largest party and, and Michelle O'Neill being in the position to become First Minister. Whether or not she will do so obviously remains an, an open question. I share Jonathan's perspective on this. I would be very surprised if Sinn Féin does not emerge as the largest political party in Northern Ireland after the next election. And that's a defining moment for Northern Ireland uh, because it will entitle them to the position of first minister. And as we know, unionism and the DUP in particular are loath to take the position of deputy first minister to a Sinn Féin first minister. That leads us down all sorts of difficult routes. Uh, so I would have concerns about the fallout from this election for stability in Northern Ireland um, in the short to medium term. And I think we will have a period of, uh, once again, a, a period of rupture, um, a period of instability, but hopefully a period which will be marked by some attempt at cross-party talks and some close involvement by both British and Irish governments in trying to uh, agree a formula whereby we will be able to resurrect the institutions of the, uh, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. But this is a very important election and Sinn Féin emerging as the largest party is a very important moment for Northern Ireland. And how all of that plays out will have an impact on those bigger constitutional issues 
if, if the institutions can be resurrected, that will take some of the force out of the constitutional issue. If they can't be resurrected, um, and if relations between the parties break down irrevocably, then I think we're looking at a very different future. Thank you both for coming on to talk with us this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It was an absolute pleasure reading your book. And I would strongly recommend that if you have not already, you go out and get a yourself a copy of A Troubled Constitutional Future, Northern Ireland After Brexit. It's a fantastic read. If people want to hear more from you, where can they go on Twitter to find you? Jonathan? Jay Evershed 01. Wonderful. The Ark Jonathan and Mary? And I'm on Twitter at Mary C. Murphy. Wonderful. Thank you very much, both of you, for coming on. And if you enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Pod and on our brand new website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.